I thought you were pulling out of the Yaba on Saturday. Hmm? Oh, yes. Yes, I was. What went wrong? Oh, I got involved. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rowling. Each episode of the Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us. Just a note, whether the film is a classic or a more contemporary title, this will be an in-depth discussion that will include explicit plot details and potential spoilers. We are at episode 79, and that is Erica's choice this time, so let's find out what she has in store for us. I chose Waken Fright from 1971, directed by Ted Kotcheff, with Gary Bond, Donald Pleasance, Chips Rafferty, Sylvia Kay, and Jack Thompson. A young schoolteacher on his way to Sydney for the Christmas holidays becomes stranded in a menacing town in outback Australia, or as I like to call it, Worst vacation ever. So before we get into the film itself, I have to ask, are you new to the Yabba? Oh, I am definitely not new. I'm an old hand around here. This is my fourth time, I think, seeing this film. I can't remember if this is just my second or my third. And I'm wondering if part of the reason why the film feels like it flies by is because I'm trying to get out of it more quickly. So how about we jump right in? I don't think we have much of a choice. We are plunged right into this world with this panorama shot of what seems to me is nothingness. Even nothingness has a train depot, though, as it turns out. One building on either side of the tracks, everything else just yellow and brown. It's desolate, it's sun-baked, you can see forever. There's barely even any scrub brush. It immediately put me in mind of the opening of Durat. It is an ancient panorama all its own, In this case, though, it doesn't seem like it's any sort of cradle of civilization. It doesn't feel like the source of anything in the same way. Quite the opposite, in fact. And it doesn't exactly feel like the frontier with all that connotes either. Because frontier ends. There's a built-in implication that the frontier is eventually tamed. And you don't get that feeling from this landscape. This seems completely static and unyielding. I will say, though, you mentioned the color. The palette on this restoration is beautiful. It is all endless blue sky and dust. And I think that example of Durat is really interesting because here I don't get any sense of community like I do in that film. And that's underscored when we come into our schoolhouse. It's small children up through older children and we see our handsome, well-dressed teacher who clearly does not care. These school kids, they seem sweet enough. But I imagine as soon as that bell rings, they're all off to get pissed drunk and burn anthills and torture animals. Is that just a residual feeling from having seen it so many times, or did you get that on your very first viewing? You know, it probably came after the end. I definitely don't look at them and think, oh, let's all gather around the hearth and sing Christmas carols. Well, this hamlet is called Tibunda. Is there a more Australian name than that? Well, I guess it turns out there is, which we will soon see. The teacher, John, dismisses everyone for the holiday, and he is out the front door, crossing the tracks to the only other building that we've seen, which is a bar-slash-rooming house. And as we see him packing and see the drawings that he's made of this rural life, and then the photos of his own family and his woman, 
we meet up with our first adult who is yelling. Our first brute, and that is the barkeep with a gun telling someone to shut up. How do you live in a place like this as an intellectual, as a man of some refinement? He seems to be artistic, creative, sentimental, and all of that is effectively, efficiently conveyed through production design. Just a quick glance around his tiny room tells a pretty complete story of who he thinks he is and how he looks at the world. This situation that he finds himself in is an exile. He considers himself a bonded servant, in essence. And that obligation means that they can send him to whatever godforsaken backwater they see fit. And here is where he has ended up. I look at that room and I think of the person that he's trying to be in this prison, in this exile. And that servitude, just to explain a bit, is that he can post a $1,000 bond to the educational system in order to buy his way out of this teaching servitude. I've never had a job that I had to be bailed out of before, have you? I haven't. I mean, it really does seem like indentured servitude to me. And $1,000 was a lot of money then, and it's a lot of money now, so the stakes are pretty high if he ever wants to get out of here. Back in that bar, we see the person that that barkeep was likely yelling at, a woman who appears to me to be a native, aboriginal, and one of the only times that we see a face like that. Another is coming up in his train trip. There's a pocket of people drunkenly singing and yelling at him to come and have a beer. Every conversation in this, even between friends and convivial acquaintances, sounds like a threat. It's all menacing. Come and have a beer always contains this implied or else. Definitely. And he sits far away from this group, on the other side of the aisle from a native man, an older man, who is sitting alone. The plan is that he has this six weeks holiday and he's going to go to Sydney, but he's got to catch a train first in order to complete the first leg of that trip. Six weeks is not nearly long enough to be away from here, or at least that's what we think until we find out what the alternative is. Would you rather have six weeks in the frying pan or six weeks in the fire? It seems like six weeks is plenty of time to maybe drive yourself more insane, to get a taste of something else before you have to return that seems even more cruel. There was a great little detail that I loved on this train trip. It seems to have a communal water glass, which I assume is only used by our teacher and little girls. I think that's one of the last drops of water we're going to see for a while. Now, he has arrived at this town, colloquially known as the Yabba, where he's going to be staying overnight, then catch that flight to Sydney. The Yabba is short for Boondin Yabba, the best place in Australia, if you're a good bloke, you know what I mean. And I think it bears repeating, this was only intended to be a one-night stay. Sucker. He's staying in some crap hotel, goes to some crap bar that seems to be incredibly loud, and when I first looked at it, I thought, gosh, it just seems to be all men, and that didn't occur to me what that meant at the time. There are definitely people singing as well, so it seems like the same kind of person wherever we go. He goes to soak up some of this local color. And I think you described the very first building that we saw as a bar slash rooming house. It pretty much goes that everything is a bar slash something around here. No one seems to spend time anywhere else, that's for sure. If you want to meet the locals, that's what you go do. And you can practically smell this movie. Did we mention that? It's boozy, it's sweaty, it comes right off the screen. 
I mentioned that in my notes in a few moments when we get to the gambling side of this. I tried to imagine what that room must have smelled like. I'm thinking moist, beery breath, brill cream, cologne, and animal dung. You may be being a little bit generous with the cologne thing. I don't think so. I think it's of that variety that it is a wafting cloud, a morass of cologne. Okay. Anyway, so we're at the local Mensa chapter. And a cop comes over to him, strikes up a conversation, which is always going to begin with, are you new to the ABBA? This is Jock Crawford played by Chips Rafferty. I love that as a question too, by the way, because they damn well know you are new. And it is just a device to make sure you know that they know. And Jock Crawford, even though he is police in this area, also gives off, to me, a menace. Though at no point does he threaten, he's trying to be friendly in his way. But that is involved with what you alluded to earlier. Have a beer. Have another one. Have another one. Have another one. On and on and on to prove yourself somehow. He does mention that there is low crime in the Yabba. Not a lot of things for him to do, but... He does tease. There are a lot of suicides. John can't exactly find his way into this conversation, it feels like. He's trying to do this on his own terms. And one of the lessons he has yet to learn is that you cannot try to be witty with these guys. They're talking and John is lamenting his contract situation and he makes his joke about being a slave. And Jock does and doesn't pick up on it. He very clearly has John pegged. Jock may not have a specific type of acumen, but he is wise enough to know that John is one of those, quote, clever guys, unquote, and that he's not as smart as he thinks he is. At least he's not smart in any way that's going to be of use to him in this place. And when he neatly slots him into that category of clever guys, that is not praise of any sort. Now, as that mandatory ritual continues on, there's sort of an old person band on stage with a band singing Christmas carols. I don't know. Have you been to very many American Legion's VFW halls? I don't know if I'd be throwing that old person band thing around. I have not. I'm sorry. Am I trying to be a clever guy? This is one of those interesting things that's rooted in cultural differences. It is a sudden shock to hear Christmas carols from this band. Because it's happening on the opposite hemisphere I initially assumed when I saw this, it didn't register to me the six-week thing. I thought this was a summer vacation because of the weather. I didn't put together the six-week reference until later to remember that that's Christmas. So all these grim twists of fate, they all take place around the holiest of holy days. Yes, this is a Christmas film. Wake and Fright is a holiday favorite. And then we have that jarring moment, which is this moment of silence that is observed to this day for fallen World War I soldiers. It's easily one of those local customs that an outsider could get wrong, which could potentially cause great offense, which of course could quickly escalate. You need someone to show you the ropes in these situations, and Jock seems to be operating as John's Virgil, a guide to this underworld, a job that is passed off later. He points out a man in the gambling hall that comes in here every Friday night with his pay packet. And all I can think is, what else is he going to do? Ted Kotcheff, the director, compared Australia to his native Canada in this way to former British colonies with a lot of vast empty area that somehow manages to imprison more than it does liberate. I think that's a fascinating idea and one that seems to be echoed among other people. That feeling of you've got nothing but wide open spaces, but somehow it feels like someone's always watching you. And here... 
There's nothing else. There's nowhere else to go. Nothing but wind and dirt and heat for miles and miles and miles. You left out beer. Yes, which we continue to see more and more of. Now, John wants some food first, and Jock leads him into a table, gets him a steak, and he sits down at the same table as a bearded man. And this man and John, I think, seem to recognize something in each other. And this character's Doc, played by the great, astounding Donald Pleasance, remarks as Jock leaves, all the little devils are proud of hell. This pricks up John's ears. He thinks he's found a kindred spirit, maybe. This man is clearly educated. He's literate. He's witty. He's observant. I think the big difference between the two of them is that Doc knows that education is only an advantage when you are in the majority. Every place has its rules. You are a fool to think that you can fight such overwhelming odds. You have to learn how to get what you want within that framework, which is what Doc has done. Or just get somewhere else that the rules are in your favor. John would obviously opt for the latter if he could, and he's openly contemptuous of the locals here. He defines the Yabba character, and I think more importantly, on a grander scale, the Australian character, as the arrogance of stupid people who insist you should be as stupid as they are. Which is something I can appreciate, and at the same time, Doc makes fun of those assertions. I like that detail that he takes food from John's plate that he doesn't plan to eat. It's this aggressive hospitality. Doc is not the confederate that John first assumes he is going to be. And Doc's rebuke of him cuts to the heart of the message of this film. He reminds him that it's death to farm out here. And it's worse than death in the mines. He asks him, do you want them to sing opera as well? Get over yourself. It's not for you. You are not the center of this universe. And it's Doc who initiates him a bit into this gambling world, showing him how the betting takes place, how the winning or the losing happens. And at that point, everything is lost. That's the sense that I got. Well, it's the first step in his decline. His inexperience here is extremely obvious. But it's such a temptation. If he wins big here, this is his ticket out of indentured servitude. And he comes very close but he blows his opportunity because, again, he doesn't know the customs. On his own, without guidance, he is lost. Fortunately for him, for all their less delicate qualities, these gamblers are honest and self-policing. Unfortunately for him, when it comes down to that most important throw of those coins, Doc is at the helm. At first, he does win, and he's so elated, but... He looks at those school books back in his room and cannot seem to bear the thought of going back. So he's willing to take that bet. And yes, Doc is the one who initiates this downfall as well. Though, of course, it's John's choice the whole time. Now, I cannot say enough great things about Donald Pleasance. I cannot express how much I adore Donald Pleasance. Do you think based on his performance here and other performances, that he was somehow tuned in to every human being ever created. Do you think that allowed him to tap into some sort of weird energy in the cosmos? How else can you explain how he's able to convey that he sees and understands everything at all times, and maybe also talk to aliens? He may be able to do all that, but he couldn't stop Michael Myers, so I don't know that you might give him as much credit as all that. Boo. It was everyone else in the way. He was trying to tell them what they were up against. I do get the feeling that no matter what the locale or the film that he is in, the line, death has come to your little town, is applicable wherever he goes. 
even in Puma Man. <laughs> well, John has lost it all and really kind of everything that's lost everything. Yes, it goes to dead silence and he is dead broke and he awakens literally stripped of everything. Can you have a lost weekend in about six hours? Is it possible to squeeze one in in that short a time? That's what the yab is for. I say cut your losses and get out now. That would be the smart play. But you have a guy who is the ultimate outsider. We see that because he has swim trunk tan lines. Who, because he has nothing, has to get some sort of work or make some sort of deal in order to be able to move forward. If there's one thing that I have trouble relating to... Well, there are probably a number of things that I have trouble directly empathizing with. But the one huge element of this I cannot relate to, being straight edge my whole life, I have no touchstone, no way to even comprehend this amount of consumption. I have never had a beer, much less dozens of them at one time. You referred to it earlier. There are instances here in which the glass is being taken from his hand before he has even swallowed what's in his mouth to be refilled. And it doesn't seem to phase any of these characters. It is mind-boggling to me. I'm just not clear from a physiological standpoint how more people just aren't dead quickly from alcohol poisoning. And the fact that they're not just seems to indicate that everyone is an alcoholic to the most extreme degree. I can't even fathom ingesting that much liquid. For some of these people, it's literally gallons in one evening. Can you imagine drinking two or three gallons of water even in one sitting? No, because you can still get water poisoning. So it seems to be, from my standpoint, terrifying, incredibly sad, and just sick-making. And by the way, Chips Rafferty reportedly insisted on actually drinking alcohol, so every time you see him drink, you're seeing him really drink. And the number of times that we see someone appear to take drink, put a drink to their mouths, was counted. I saw varying tallies that were anywhere from around 110 up to 190, give or take. And that's in a 109-minute film. It's exhausting. It's exhausting to watch. What, you don't like the Yabba? I don't like the Yabba. <laughs> now, the weekend and the holiday are against him, so he's not able to get to the labor exchange to maybe figure out something to do. So he's left to wander around town with his bags. Back in another bar, the same conversation starter, are you new to the Yabba? This time, it's Tim Hines, offering to buy him a drink, challenging him to take this drink, which he has to essentially chug. And then a short time later, they're both drunk, playing the snooker. And they're just trying to figure him out. He's not a mason. He's not a buff. He doesn't belong. He's a puzzle to them. The locals really have no way to understand or quantify someone who doesn't want to join their metaphorical club. I think back to that comment that you made early on about this also is not a frontier. So if I try to make a, an analog to this in westerns that I grew up with, for example, where there's always going to be a schoolteacher character, there isn't here. It's not the same kind of community. Funny that you mentioned that device, though, because he is definitely our school marm in this overwhelmingly masculine place. We finally meet our first significant female character here coming up shortly, and that's 43 minutes into this thing. I think we looked at each other at one point and realized an entire 45 minutes has gone by. It feels like a flash. And that woman is Jeanette. Jeanette Hines, Tim Hines' daughter. 
Because, again, in this sense of aggressive hospitality, he's insisted that John come home with him. Jeanette is the only other clean person that we've seen so far, and seems very either cold or depressed or both. The Yabba seems like an even harder than average place to be a woman. As it turns out, the small town that this was based on, Broken Hill, the suicide rate for women there was five times the national average. When they're making this and Ted Kotcheff was asking where are all the women, he was told they're either sitting outside in their car or they're at home putting their head in the oven. She's a survivor. She's clearly tough. Flint hard, in fact, it feels like. There's a seductive quality to that almost. But am I just confusing clean and not sweat-drenched for sexy? Or maybe what happens a bit later when she is the person who takes the lead role. Before we move on from that, though, I want to talk about the flip side of that suicide rate, not seeing women around. The director was talking, as you mentioned, before the filming with locals to get a sense of where he was, and he met with the editor of the local newspaper. A good person to talk to, the person who knows where all the bodies are buried, as it were. And he also pointed out that not only are these women in specific places or with their heads in the oven, there are no brothels, only bars. We're going to get to those further implications in a bit, but I think that that is a fascinating thing to think about right now. Well, Tim's beefy pals show up and almost immediately ask what's wrong with John. He'd rather talk to a woman than drink? A testament to the power of beer as currency, I suppose, ranking even above sex in the hierarchy in this strangely sexless place? Those mates are Dick and Joe, and that's Jack Thompson as Dick. This was his first film role, actually. And Peter Whittle is Joe. The detail that I love here, there are two things, actually. One is that they feel the need to leave their shirts unbuttoned down to the navel. And then the second is that we see Dick touching the ceiling of the house. To me, it connotes ownership and then marking your territory in a weird way and also suggesting your height, physical advantage. So many things in that one little moment, something that I would never think about doing in another person's house. And because at the same time, it's so weirdly sexless, they're still actively hitting on Jeanette, but obviously not in a way that's going to work. Tim and Dick and Joe insist that they're going to take care of John, fix him up. He doesn't have to find work. Just keep drinking and let's keep playing with the guns inside the house. Jeanette is essentially the maid in this scenario. And John asks, can I help you? For which there is no answer. Now, as the evening wears on, John is talking freely about all of his hopes and dreams He'd like to get to England, maybe become a journalist. He's showing Jeanette pictures of his girl, Robin, which all seems very one-sided. I get the sense that she's waiting for him to do something. I don't know what to make of her in these scenes. She's a little inscrutable to me. Is she taking pity on how ignorant he is of his situation and just how much danger he finds himself in? Or is she taking advantage of this oasis of sensitivity that she is not going to come across again for a long time. In one regard, he must be like water in the desert for her. Or in another sense, which didn't occur to me then, only with information that's told to me later, maybe she just wants to have sex. He wouldn't necessarily be my first choice there. He does seem like kind of a drip. For whatever reason, she decides to lead him away, even as we've seen that Doc has arrived for this ever-expanding card game. 
Well, the seduction begins in earnest, but he cannot consummate this. He's not much of a man. He can't perform. He can't hold his liquor. He is just one more overgrown boy for her to take care of now. I know a lot of people point to the kangaroo hunt coming up as this character's point of no return, but I don't agree. For me, it's right here. This is where the last barrier falls between him and being one of the boys. With this failure with Jeanette, he has crossed this Rubicon. And I think her performance is really fascinating here as well. Again, that inscrutability that she mentioned. She doesn't seem to derive pleasure even before he's not able to finish the job. It all seems very awkward and uncomfortable, her closing her eyes as she opens her dress. And then that great action of cleaning him up with her own handkerchief as if she's his mother. So what exactly does she want or need? I'm not sure. Now, they stumble back to the house. Doc is doing a headstand here, explaining scientifically how he can keep the alcohol down even though he's upside down. There are more men there. They're drinking and drinking and drinking, and there's room spin. We see him being loaded into a car. Until at last, he wakes up to flies and a pinpoint of light in his face. I like how light is so often used as a device to obscure or confuse. In most situations, it provides illumination and clarity, but in this case, it is exactly the opposite. He is nothing more than a kangaroo in someone's spotlight over and over again. Or it's almost as if Australia is the child with the magnifying glass and he's the ant. Well, he wakes up to yet another morning after. Now, I know you said you love Donald Pleasance, as do I. Do you think this is his best performance? Can you think of anything that he's better in? Raw meat? (laughs) That's the one I was going to suggest, too. I don't know. I think I prefer this one even to that one, although I do really enjoy that one. He's also great in an episode of Mrs. Columbo. (laughs) He's singing opera with no shirt and cooking up some sort of horrible slop. (laughs) You don't refuse Yabba hospitality. But Doc is not from the Yabba, so these exchanges feel a little different than the other ones that John goes through. There's a sense of free will, I feel like. With Doc, John has choices, which makes the fact that he continues down this path that much more damning. I also want to refer back to that sense of understanding I think he has. Understanding of other people. He's talking about how they've all had their episodes with Jeanette and what she likes. I like all of the detail that's conveyed here in this conversation. Doc is giving his background. He's an alcoholic. He's the town character, or one of many town characters. How he gets along without money. There's this telling exchange where John can't bring himself to directly ask where the toilet is. He's a goner. This sort of gentility in the Yabba marks you as prey. In this fascinating tangent that you refer to where Doc is talking about Jeanette and this arrangement they have, an arrangement that she seems to have with a number of men, and how sex is just like eating. It's just something you do because you have to, not because you want to. This element of their lives is probably one of my favorite parts of this puzzle, this juxtaposition of complete sexual freedom against the apparent conservatism in this place. It's such a curious byproduct of this seemingly lawless environment that they live in. This odd evolution of accepted behaviors and mechanisms by which these places self-govern and self-regulate. It may be somewhat lawless, and yet there are somehow very definitely rules. He does mention that sex is what we do, and he's saying all of this while he's watching John P. 
I still get the sense that he's able to find pleasure, as is Jeanette in it, but maybe I'm just extrapolating from that. So the Yabba is not number one on your list of sex tourism destinations? Nope. Unless you like the smell of aqua velva. <laughs> I do like that he specifically says, I'm an alcoholic. He uses the word. He doesn't say I'm a drunk or I like to drink. It seems somehow so much different than how anyone else would phrase it. Well, he's a doctor. He's a man of science. Well, it's this morning that John is informed that they are going to go kangaroo hunting. And this episode is completely out of control. There's nothing to do with sport here. This is just wanton destruction of flora, of fauna, of their own vehicle. Now, the kangaroo hunt proper, do you know how long that scene was? It felt like a half an hour. The same for me, and it's only, quote-unquote, eight minutes. It feels like a horrifying eternity. But there's a lot of build-up before we get there. They're at yet another one of these far-flung taverns in the middle of nowhere, and they're sitting on the porch shooting at a fox, and John lustily joins in in this process. He actually hits the thing, but then is chided for going to retrieve it. It underlines just how much they are killing for the sake of killing and nothing else. The hunt continues after dark with spotlights, and it is the complete antithesis of sporting. The spotlight hunting is illegal in a number of countries, states, and provinces worldwide, the only usual exemption being for population control. In this case, it is not that. In this case, it is plainly and simply a massacre. I want to talk a bit about the background of shooting this hunt. It was really controversial to include this footage, right? It was, and even in the re-release, people walked out during that scene. It was very important for the director, Ted Kotcheff, to make very clear, he did this in a director's statement, that absolutely no kangaroo was injured or killed for my film. He had a representative from the Royal Australian Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals present at all times, and they actually wanted the scenes of that massacre of kangaroos to be as disturbing as possible for people to really understand what was happening. Well, mission accomplished. It is always so much harder for me to watch any animal cruelty than anything that's done to a human being. Is it the same for you? I think it depends, but it definitely cuts to my heart. There are scenes of cruelty to humans that are imaginable for me and really hurt, but I know exactly what you're talking about. I guess it's more the amount of defenselessness on the part of the person or animal that this is being perpetrated upon. Absolutely. And he also said hurting animals is morally indefensible. He talks about watching a French film about World War I veterans where it was clear that in order to show the dehumanization of the people in the film, they poured gasoline over a dog and ignited it. It was clear that it wasn't faked. And he thought that it was in fact the film's director who had been the one who had been dehumanized to commit such an act for the sake of the film. And so he would never do that. However, though, he did use his crew in order to film a hunt that was already going to be taking place. He also even cut down what was filmed. They didn't use about 75% of what was shot because it was too horrifying. And they even faked a power failure just to stop the hunt because no one from the crew side could stand it any longer. The last thing I want to leave you with here to make it even more horrifying is when Ted Kotcheff talks about how much he loved the kangaroos. They would hang around the filming. They would wait, he says, like extras. 
He calls them the most anthropomorphic creatures he's ever encountered. Well, the filmmakers include a disclaimer that no kangaroos were killed expressly for the film. Does that knowledge do anything to soften the impact of these images? It doesn't, nor thinking about how wonderful and cuddly they are. It's a bit like telling a jury to ignore damning evidence because it was introduced to the proceedings in a way that was inappropriate. You cannot unring that bell. And I don't think he could have chosen a more fitting animal to do this with. Kachif has taken maybe the most recognizable and innocent symbol of Australian culture that we know worldwide and has completely degraded and destroyed it. So the hunt goes on forever and it feels like it's never going to end and it's awful. Have we said that enough? They are shooting these animals. They're leaving them there to die. Joe goes to physically fight one of them and cuts its throat. And John makes the decision that he's going to do the same thing. Well, kangaroos are not defenseless. They are formidable, especially in a fair fight. Face to face with one, John hesitates. But then he is eventually overtaken by his worst impulses. This is not the passing of a point of no return like a lot of people refer to it. To me, this is the coffin lid slamming shut. And, as I could say, probably about half a dozen different scenes in the film, this scene is just an intense distillation of the film as a whole. And he chooses to do it with a baby kangaroo as well. I just wanted to be done with this at this point, and maybe because I ate too much strawberry cake last night, I feel even sick to my stomach talking about it now. But you know what will make this go away? That's more alcohol. Can we throw in a little fighting, too, to mix it up a little? We have to. Well, what I can only assume is the regular Saturday night brawl breaks out in this post-hunt sequence, and they completely wreck this guy's place. It's only a party, they say. Dick and Joe are rolling around on the ground, wrestling, fighting just to fight. Doc is tearing things up. And John continues to drink. So I want to go back to something we talked about a bit earlier. The natural extension of this idea that there are no brothels here, the lack of women, and also that editor pointed out to Ted Kotcheff, there isn't really homosexuality to take the place of this. So he said, in essence... The fighting is the only human touch that they experience. Well, Kotchev talks about how he was challenged constantly throughout his time in Broken Hill. He managed to avoid having to fight, but only barely. And he reiterates that this was the only human contact that a lot of these men have. No one experiences tenderness or physical demonstrations of friendship. These fights are a way to license touch. Clearly, as we will soon see, there are a lot of ways that that can go awry. If you've been watching carefully, there's been a little physical encroachment on John's space by Doc throughout this evening. They get back to Doc's cabin, and now it goes completely over the line into a full-blown sexual encounter. What do you get here in terms of John's participation and consent? I think it's telling and fascinating that it's Doc who ends up on top of John before we cut away from that scene. And then that next morning after, waking up semi-entwined. I'm not sure that consent necessarily plays a part in any of this. I don't think John has the wherewithal to express himself, to make a strong decision one way or the other. I do, however, get the sense that at least passively he goes along with it. I distinguish that, however oddly, from Doc somehow overpowering him. I don't get that idea. How about you? I feel like it's the worst yet for him in the series of mornings after. 
but it's exactly in line with his every other action so far. Just like with the gambling, the drink, and the hunting, he was hesitant at first, but needed little more than the slightest of pushes to become an enthusiastic, if confused, participant. There's a part of him that clearly wants to indulge. It just may be that this is literally the very first time in his life that he has ever come face to face with that. To me, his disgust isn't so much that he is rigidly morally opposed to all these behaviors. It's more the cognitive dissonance of having to accept the fact that you are not the paragon of virtue that you once considered yourself. It's the sting of being knocked off your pedestal and having to face the fact that you are no different from these people that you consider yourself superior to. I definitely don't think he engages in any sort of deep soul searching as in, what does this mean for my sexuality? Or thinking about any emotion beyond, let me get out of here. And I think it's also fascinating that the film doesn't make us go there. It doesn't have to incur that sort of soul searching. Well, the examined life is not exactly how you do things here. For instance, immediately after this, no one seems particularly alarmed at the blood and vomit encrusted man staggering down the street with a rifle. That's just life in the Yabba. That's true. And I think, though, this is the first time he's excited to see a drink, which is pretty sad. Right back at that same bar, there's Jock again. I thought you were going to get out of the Yabba. Well, he's there to reclaim his luggage, and he is finally going to get out of this town. And one of my favorite things happens here. We did it in our opening scene. He is asked the very freighted question, what went wrong? I got involved. That's the understatement of the year. How do you even begin to answer that question after everything that's happened? Enough went wrong that he seems to be dead set on just chucking it all, throwing everything away, going anywhere else, and starting over. I think, though, that Jock can probably identify the different stains on his clothing and get a sense of what did go wrong. How do you reasonably go back to your quote-unquote normal life now, is the big question. I think, at least here, he's still going to try to get to Sydney. Definitely not go back to his job. So he's trying to hitchhike. And... In that sense that he is as much of a local as anyone, he does shoot a rabbit and eat it. He gets dropped at yet another bar, gets quote-unquote invited to come and have a drink again, and sees what looks like a transport vehicle that should be going to Sydney. So he trades the rifle for a ride. And in this terrible nightmare scenario we're in, he ends up right back in the Yabba. This is the last straw. He is going to put an end to things, and I think it's indicative of his character that in looking to eradicate the source of his misery, he seeks first to punish Doc. He is still not willing to accept personal responsibility for his own degradation. When Doc is gone, he instead opts to shoot himself in the head. Fortunately, it's not fatal. I think it's also fascinating, again, that it is the act of Doc coming in and startling him that makes the gun go off. I really like this touch in the hospital that Jock is still looking out for him, drafting his official statement, making it not look like a suicide attempt. It makes me wonder how often he's done similar things since it's been mentioned before. So he's released from the hospital and Doc finally puts him on the train home. There is no exchange between the two here. Very awkward. We did just do it. Do we not at least high five? He's back home, back with that same barkeep from hell. Back to Tibunda. What I did on my Christmas vacation. Everyone write a little essay for me. Did I mention that all of these hotel, cafe, tavern owners seem to be gatekeepers to hell? And when he's asked, did you have a good holiday? 
And personally, I think I breathed a huge sigh of relief that I don't have to watch any more of this, even though it is a great film, or specifically because it is a great film, I don't want to watch any more of it. No less than Nick Cave said, Wake and Fright is the best and most terrifying film about Australia in existence. It was billed as a horror film. Do you consider it to be a horror film? Oh, most definitely. It's a horror film the same way I think of Barton Fink as a horror film. There are a lot of similarities, in fact, between Barton Fink and John. I was just talking with our friend Joe Turner about this subject, and he made the excellent point about how people have conflated fear, which is easy to manipulate with jump scares, etc., with horror, which is a more deeply felt, more emotionally resonant experience. This is far and away in the latter category. Think about how filled with dread you are from the very first frame. The horror of being the very obvious outsider. The horror of your intellect being worthless in the face of something so primal. And especially the horror of this wretched comeuppance that will always, always remind you that you are subject to the whims of both cruel fate and, especially humiliating, those that you consider inferior to you. Truly horrifying, especially to a character that was so sure of what he thought to be true of himself and his world. The horror of the landscape, the brutalism, the realistic violence and terrifying humanity or lack thereof. You are trapped. You are in prison, partially of your own making, prisoner to your choices, a prisoner to people who are stronger than you in ways that you didn't consider to be strengths. So, as in all things, we're in 100% agreement with Nick Cave, it sounds like. Always. This film is definitely viewed differently by some sections of Australians than others, and also by the world at large, wouldn't you agree? I would think so. I know that some Australians absolutely hate it. Some people accuse Ted Kotcheff of essentially having a Canadian viewpoint of the Australian character, and some people definitely identify with it. There's that famous story of somebody in the audience saying, that's not us, meaning Australians, and Jack Thompson saying, yes, mate, that is us. I'm going to include some, I think, really interesting links that talk about these aspects of the quote-unquote Australian character, but I wanted to get into it a bit with you as well, and then talk about some possible American analogs to this. I have to look at two specific things. One to do with John's character in particular, and then how that fits into Australia as a whole. How strong could this character have been to begin with? How much of a true sense of self do you think he started with? I think of the callowness of youth, even though he's not a 20-year-old man. He's still a very young man with probably not a great deal of experience with the world, and certainly not this specific experience. You're right. To me, he didn't seem to know himself and specifically what he was capable of at all. And so much of his misapprehension is rooted in condescension toward this Australian character. As much as this is a shot across the bow of Australia at large, it also certainly takes the effete to task. It's my favorite thing about it, ultimately, the fact that no one is let off the hook. You can look down your nose all you like, but you're one bad day from getting right down here and wallowing with the rest of us metaphorical pigs. Don't think you aren't. At least the pigs are honest with themselves about it. They don't try to tell themselves they're not pigs. I say that, but the pigs did squeal a little bit, actually. I think it's hard for us to fathom what a gut punch 
What an indictment of the culture this was at the time. Australia was trying to cultivate a global image as an untamed but friendly place. What should we put on the brochure? Rugged? Sure, that works. Yes, I like that. How about an insane hellscape of drunken misogynist violence? I'm sure it felt to a large part of the audience like a betrayal. But how much of that was disingenuous, do you think? You mentioned the anecdote about Jack Thompson. How much of that anger was the audience essentially saying, look, you know this is how it is. We know this is how it is. But I thought the deal was that we don't tell other people. I imagine being in those initial audiences and seeing all around the slowly dawning realization that the antagonist, the villain of this piece, is what you consider to be your entire way of life. And I think Ted Kotcheff's point was that in a much larger sense, this is about men. And I mean that in both a restricted gender role and not. The reality was that this was a male landscape. And we can talk about how that came to be and how that evolved. But how it devolved was definitely as a result of alcohol and toxic masculinity, which is a phrase that I do use specifically here. I don't know that I've ever seen this much masculinity, this full of this many toxins all at one time. It's true. And he also said, I think this is the greatest point, which is that push a man too far and you'll find the beast concealed behind the mask of propriety. Before we move on from there, I want to get into a little bit more of something that Ted Kotcheff has said in, in one of his great interviews. And the question was, so the hypermasculinity was a result of industry, meaning the industry in the area. And Ted said, maybe it sounds like a pathology, but it's not. There was nothing else to do. It's a totally masculine society. Women civilize us, otherwise we're brutes. There's nothing to do there except be an aggressive man. So then, if this film might show the worst of Australia, the worst of the Australian character, can you think of an American analog to that? Something that shows the worst of us? Or even the same kind of journey? In this same mold, I would say Deliverance probably fits that bill the best. It shows us everything that is wrong with ourselves in a similar fashion. It just substitutes proving your manhood through trials for this aggressive Australian hospitality. Similar lessons are learned, but the catalyst in this American take is pride, rugged individualism. It's not as convivial, and we aren't as comfortable with ourselves. We have something to prove. That chip on your shoulder that comes from your culture being only a couple hundred years old. What about you? I started to think about those things that I watch where I then look at how an outsider might view them. Going back again to Durant for a second and reading about this idea of American opulence, which doesn't always mean a lot to me just in my day-to-day -day life. But these films do make me think of that. Just a short list in no particular order. The entire catalog of Wit Stillman. <laughs> Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. How does that figure into opulence? What do you mean by that? I'm sorry, I got a little bit off track. Okay. So it's a little bit of both. It's that journey plus or the American opulence. Okay. Back to the opulence, breakfast at Tiffany's. I think also just the shallowness and griminess at the center of our character, concealed by a whole lot of flash. And lastly, legally blonde. It's funny how you pick so many of these that seem to be feminine rather than masculine as an opposite to Wake and Fright. 
I think I gravitated to thinking about more female-centric examples of those American analogs because this film draws that gender line so specifically, I think I just naturally gravitated to the other side of that. It was, I think, the things in looking at my own character that, if taken to that degree, seem to just be so disgusting that I cannot possibly justify to any other person. So in this case, not so much menace and malice as just vapid and shallow. Those are the things you're keying in on? I think there's definitely a lot of menace and malice. And yes, a huge dose of shallowness. A huge dose of aspects of character that are disgusting when you actually examine them. And I have one last question for you. I know that a lot has been made of this being almost lost and then rediscovered, a bit of a time capsule find on the verge of being just destroyed for good. Does this play as an artifact for you? I think it's aged incredibly well. It does not feel dated at all when I watch it. To me either. It also didn't feel dated to Roger Ebert, by the way. I just assumed, rightly or wrongly, because of what this film has convinced me of, that this is happening as we speak. And I think that's because it is so horrifying. Roger Ebert talked about how that horror is human and realistic. And it seems like that's one of those things that doesn't ever feel dated. That could also possibly be, further to our last episode on the Toronto True Crime Film Festival, that I've been going through a lot of true crime. And every day, there's a fresh example of horrible things we do to ourselves, to animals, to our fellow humans that are as terrible or more terrible than anything I see in this film. Well, how about you do something good for humanity and give us a fresh example of a recommendation? My recommendation was another analog for this film, and that is Straw Dogs from 1971. So we're not exactly going to be doing something pleasant for people after all. Nope. Directed by Sam Peckinpah, duh, with Dustin Hoffman and Susan George. A young American and his English wife come to rural England and face increasingly vicious local harassment. This was a brutal and confusing experience for me, specifically with the violence and sex that's at the center of this. I think it's fascinating to watch. I had to think about it for a long time. I saw it when I was a bit younger. And in that same way where there were so many questions around Jeanette's motivations, I think this film asks a lot of questions of the viewer. You mean pushes you up against the wall, two inches from your face asks you those questions. Well said, in a particular Sam Peckinpah way. And how about you? I am going to keep it down under, and I'm going to recommend The Chant of Jimmy Blacksmith from 1978, directed by Fred Schapese. Starring Tom E. Lewis, Freddie Reynolds, Ray Barrett, and Jack Thompson is back again. Jimmy is a man of half-Aboriginal ancestry pushed to the breaking point by the racist oppression perpetrated by the British colonial rule of Australia in 1900 and by his inability to acclimate to Western culture. He commits several vicious murders and then goes on the run. I chose it because it has a number of similar factors in common with Wake and Fright. It reaches back even farther into Australia's past to look at what a harsh and unforgiving place it can be. Some audiences were less than enthusiastic in their response to the film and how it reflected on their mother country. And it looks at the rapid moral descent of a once decent man who now finds himself in a waking nightmare. It may be even more inherently Australian as it directly takes on the long cultural history of racism against its native population 
and an equally horrifying response to that oppression. It is brutal and brutally honest, both in its depiction of race relations and the violence that is portrayed on screen and implied off screen. There are women and children among the victims, so prepare yourself for that. Also, much like Wake and Fright, it maintains its relevance, though in this case for different reasons. In short, if you want to keep this grim Aussie train rolling, then this would be a great selection for you. So once again, that's two great recommendations, Straw Dogs and The Chant of Jimmy Blacksmith. And that brings us to the end of episode 79. If you have yet to take a look at it, we would appreciate it if you go check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash magiclantern. There are perks at all sorts of levels, and starting at the $5 a month level of support, you get access to bonus episodes that we put out in the gaps between our regular episodes. Will Puma Man show up on my list of my favorite MST3K episodes? Tune in to the Patreon to find out. If you would just like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast in any of those venues. The Facebook group has been really exciting and fun since we started it, so come over and participate. We are on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, just about anywhere you find podcasts, you can find our show there. If you would like to leave us a rating or review via any of those services, we would definitely appreciate that. We are on Twitter at Lantern underscore cast. And I just wanted to take a second to say thanks to everyone who has given us feedback or shared the show since last time. The fine gentlemen at FUDS on Film, Tim Lego, Grindhouse Dave, and Jane Sankner. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material at the website, magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. <laughs>